if it's this doomsday scenario of the U.S. getting out of Paris, I hear that from several groups who are opponents of getting out of Paris. But then I hear that the market's going to drive this anyway. And if the market's going to drive this anyway, then the United States doesn't need to be in Paris to be an innovator and a global leader in the energy markets for conventional fuels, for nuclear fuels, or for renewable fuels. To withdraw from Paris, I think, is to send a signal that a certain hostility to the process, the transition that's underway, which I think is really, in a sense, a self-inflicted wound and an unnecessary step. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from Massachusetts. I write a blog called Law Sites. Also co-host another Legal Talk Network program called Law Technology Now, that one with Monica Bay. My co-host for this program, J. Craig Williams, is in court today and unable to join us. Before we introduce today's topic, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Clio and Litera. Clio is a cloud-based practice management software that makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at Clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com. And Latera is the authority on document creation, collaboration, and control. You can increase your productivity, collaborate securely, and ensure protection of your vital information. Learn more at www.Latera.com. On June 1st, President Trump announced that the United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement, the accord negotiated by 195 countries in 2015 to limit and reduce global warming. Nicaragua and Syria are the only other countries not currently involved in the Paris Agreement. Environmental organizations, scientists, and many others have voiced their outrage over President Trump's decision, alleging that this move is a flat-out denial of climate change that will eventually lead to the destruction of our environment. While supporters of the withdrawal praise President Trump's decision, saying that it will save the taxpayers' money, create domestic energy production, and jobs stateside. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at uh, the two sides of this issue, the impact on the law, on the climate, and our economy, and the long-term implications of this decision. To help us do that, we have two guests uh, who are extremely knowledgeable in this area. First of all, let me introduce to you Attorney Jeffrey B. Gracer from the firm Sive, Paget and Rizel in New York City. Jeff has a vibrant domestic and international environmental law practice, in addition to his domestic practice, which includes representing a large multinational enterprise and the largest Superfund matter in the U.S. Jeff regularly represents non-U.S. companies with respect to U.S. environmental matters. His clients have included companies from Argentina, Brazil, Canada, China, Germany, India, Russia, and the U.K., Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Jeffrey Gracer. Thank you. Good to be here. Also joining us today is Nicholas Loris. Nick is an economist who focuses on energy, environmental, and regulatory issues as the Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. 
a research fellow at Heritage's Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. Nick studies and writes about energy supplies, energy prices, and other economic effects of environmental policies and regulations, including climate change legislation, energy efficiency mandates, and energy subsidies. He also covers oil, coal, oil, natural gas, nuclear gas, and renewable energy policy and articulates the benefits of free market environmentalism. Welcome to the show, Nick Loris. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks to both of you for being with us today. And uh, Jeffrey, I, I wonder if I might start with you and ask you if you could just kind of give us an overview of what the Paris Agreement really is. I mean, we've all heard an awful lot about it over the last couple of weeks, and we've heard about uh, various uh, parameters of, of what it does and what it doesn't do, but give us the, the kind of the thumbnail of, of what the Paris Agreement is about. Sure. Well, the Paris Agreement marked, I think, a very significant departure from the prior attempts to negotiate a global climate change agreement in that it's, it's really a bottom-up agreement rather than a top-down agreement, meaning that each country brings its ambition to address the climate change issue with a nationally determined plan. In some ways, you could liken it to a smorgasbord in, in that people bring what they're going to bring for the meal, and then you have a really good meal. So it's designed to be sensitive to the rights of different countries to determine what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. And I think that's a very important aspect of this agreement, which distinguishes it from prior agreements in that it is designed to be quite flexible in how companies that are in that agreement can aspire to lower greenhouse gas emissions and to actually achieve that. So everyone does their part, but they don't always do it in the same way. And that allows economies that are in different stages of development to uh, seek different outcomes and different opportunities. And what aspects of the Paris Agreement are compulsory and what were not compulsory? I mean, you talked about the fact that companies can kind of set their own uh, goals, I guess, for greenhouse gas emissions under this agreement. Do I have that right? And if that's the case, why didn't the United States, why didn't the Trump administration simply you know, decide to reduce its commitments under this agreement? Well, that's a very good question. And just, just to clarify, it's countries can bring their own nationally determined plans, not companies. Did I, if I said companies, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah no, no, no problem. But the idea is that each country gets to set its course in this international framework. And the agreement is actually designed to account for changes in administration it does have some provisions that govern the aspiration to get below, ultimately to get below 1.5 degrees centigrade by taking more aggressive action in the future. But it also, in its structure and design, accounts for the fact that there could be a change in government with new leadership that might want to achieve the goals in a different way or even redefine the goals. So my view, anyway, is under the express design of Paris Agreement, the president had a lot of flexibility if he wanted to get to a result in a different way or even change the, the goal to do that and still remain in the Paris Agreement. So, and, and he got that advice from a lot of people, I believe, within his administration as well as outside of it. So that is one of the central questions as to why withdrawal 
was deemed to be necessary. There were some people, I believe, in the administration, I read reports arguing that it was compulsory, but I just don't think that's the case. And I think if you read the agreement and you look at its negotiating history, that's just not borne out by the text of the agreement. Let me. I'm going to turn to Nick uh, in just a second, but before I do, I just want to ask you one other question. I mean, you're an environmental lawyer. Your firm says it was the first environmental law firm in the country, so uh, obviously you've been at this for a long time. How would you describe the significance of this agreement as a device to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Well, I think that that question will be answered in the future when people actually do what they said they were going to do. But I think the important component of the agreement is that it sets a tone and direction and creates a structure for an orderly process of transitioning from more polluting activities and sources of energy to less polluting activities and sources of energy. And it sent a very strong market signal that that was the direction that the global economy was going to go. I mean, we are in the 21st century and there are other sources of energy available now that are less polluting. The markets are already taking us in that direction, but this was an effort which I believe will continue to be successful to set that tone and direction. And we're seeing uh, now that even with the president's announcement that there are very, very significant and powerful constituencies in the United States that are reaffirming their commitment to the reduction goals uh, that were set forth in the Paris Agreement. Nick Loris, you're an economist, and you have said uh, and written that the Paris Agreement was a truly bad deal for American taxpayers and American energy companies and and others in in the United States. Why do you say that? Yeah, it really gets to the costs and benefits of the agreement. I don't think it's just a bad deal for the United States. I think it's a bad deal for Europe uh, and other countries, maybe some that are benefiting from some of the green climate funds Uh, will end up on the winning side of this deal. But in the large part, I think it comes down to costs and benefits. And if you look at the regulations that were submitted as part of the United States' nationally determined contributions, the Clean Power Plan, the regulations on on new coal fire power plants, these regulations will drive up the cost of energy. And that will have significant ripple effects throughout the economy because energy is a necessary component of everything we make and everything we do. And so businesses will pass those higher costs on to consumers. If they absorb those costs, that means they can invest and innovate less. So it really acts as an economic vice that squeezes both the production and consumption side of the economy. And on the flip side, even if every country were to follow through with these commitments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, although some have been very vague about what they intend to do or when they intend to do it, you're talking about mitigating global temperatures a few tenths of a degree Celsius by the turn of the century. And so I don't think that's really anything to be proud of. It took a lot of negotiating just to get to these voluntary pledges that, again, I think were very ambiguous. And China doesn't have to reduce its emissions until it peaks in 2030. India's is based on emissions intensity or cuts on the ratio of CO2 emissions to GDP. So that ratio will go down. 
uh, as long as CO2 emissions rise less rapidly than GDP, but CO2 emissions will continue to increase. And so I think there's still this tremendous divide between the developed country and the developing world that would actually get to any meaningful reductions in CO2 to mitigate global temperatures and keep it below that two degrees Celsius threshold that was the original intent of the negotiating. Well, isn't there, I mean, isn't some degree of mitigation, even a small one, preferable to the course we're currently on or we've been on for quite a while now? Not at the cost that it would take. I mean, you're talking about slicing trillions of dollars uh, out of the global economy. You're talking about slicing trillions of dollars just out of the U.S. economy if these regulations were to go through. So, again, I don't think that two-tenths of a degree Celsius by the year 2100 sacrificing enormous economic growth and keeping developing countries in lower levels of standards of living when more than a billion people don't have access to affordable, dependable energy sources, and when more than 2 billion people are still using cookstoves and burning dung to basically live their lives, uh, to deprive them of a better standard of living when fossil fuels still provide the overwhelming majority of energy, uh, meet our energy demands, both in the United States and worldwide. I don't think it's morally right to deprive developing countries of those resources. And that's not to say we have to use fossil fuels forever. I I do think there is momentum for clean energy sources, for renewables, for nuclear power, for more natural gas, both uh, as an electricity generating source, but also as a transportation fuel. But if the market's going to drive those things, then we shouldn't worry about Paris anyway. Uh, If it's this doomsday scenario of the U.S. getting out of Paris, I hear that from several groups who are opponents of getting out of Paris. But then I hear that the market's going to drive this anyway. And if the market's going to drive this anyway, then the United States doesn't need to be in Paris to be an innovator and a global leader in the energy markets for conventional fuels, for nuclear fuels, or for renewable fuels. Jeff, that's is that sort of your position? I mean, you wrote a piece last week for recently for The Hill that talks about the fact that despite the administration's backsteps, I guess, on environmental regulation, that in fact, the horse is kind of already out of the gate in a lot of ways. The corporations and, and governments are continuing to move forward to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and that there's a lot of support for that among citizens of the United States, of both political parties. So, I mean, is the market kind of already uh, driving what the Paris Agreement uh, was striving for? And, And if so, does that kind of make the agreement unnecessary or redundant? Well, I agree that the market is a major driver here, but I don't agree that it makes the Paris Agreement redundant. And it would be perfectly acceptable to many people if uh, the president and this administration stayed in Paris and said, you know what, we're going to get there in a different way. I mean, I would love to see the country stay in Paris and have a really meaningful debate about whether market-based mechanisms rather than regulation could get us to you know, more meaningful greenhouse gas reductions in a more cost-effective way. That's a discussion that I think would be very productive. And I was hoping that that would be the approach taken you know, by this administration. You can find another way to get there. It could be market-based. It could be the Climate Leadership Council proposal by James Baker, Henry Paulson, George Schultz, and other respected conservative people who, who have significant government experience. But to withdraw from Paris, I think, is to send a signal that a certain um, 
hostility to the, the process, the transition that's underway, which I think is really, in a sense, a self-inflicted wound and an unnecessary step for the reasons I discussed earlier. In terms of the economic interests behind the transition that we're in, they're very powerful. I mean, the We Are Still In coalition, which emerged right after the president's announcement, has 1,400 entities, states, cities, corporations, universities. They represent over $6.2 trillion of the U.S. economy, 120 million people. These aren't just uh, Ben and Jerry's, although that's a significant company, part of, of a larger corporation, Unilever. It's Amazon, it's Mars, it's Adobe. It's, you know, brand names that people recognize. So these are not just the environmental groups, although they, the environmental groups have you know, valid perspectives on this, but these are states and cities, 143 cities, uh, at last count, I think nine states, over a thousand corporations that are saying, this is just not a good way to go. And these companies are sending the world a message that they are going to continue this work. So I think it's unfortunate. I don't think it's the end of the world in the sense that everything's going to unravel, but I think it's going to make it harder to harness the markets. And as I said, when I just started my comments, I would really like to see a discussion of conservative solutions to climate change um, and market-based mechanisms. That would be a step forward. Before we continue our discussion, we need to take a short break. Please stay with us, and we will be back in just a few moments. Documents are the currency of business. They represent you in every business interaction. Executives need to know what changes have occurred in documents, what metadata risks exist, and how to encrypt, share, and collaborate securely. Patera simplifies the document creation and collaboration process to protect you from risk and loss of reputation. Patera offers better solutions for document lifecycle management so you can focus on doing what really matters www.latera.com. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, Clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrosi. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is away today. Joining us uh, as guests today are attorney Jeffrey B. Gracer from the law firm Sive, Paget and Rizel in New York City, and Nick Loris, uh, an economist who focuses on energy, environment, and regulatory issues as the Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C. We're talking about President Trump's decision to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. Nick, President Trump has said that he has perhaps has interest in renegotiating the agreement. Uh, Jeffrey was just commenting on wanting to know what the perhaps conservative uh, approach to this would be. What do you see as an appropriate 
approach to this. What might a renegotiated agreement look like that you think would be both uh, economically productive and uh, environmentally productive? Yeah, well, I do think we need to start from the realization that while renewables and natural gas are penetrating the market in significant ways, there are vast majority of developing nations who are continuing to pursue and build coal-fired power plants. A climate action tracker report uh, from 2015 estimated that more than 2,400 would be built by the year 2030, and maybe not all of those will be built, but it's still a significant amount. I bring all that up because, again, I think it's going to be very difficult to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in a significant way that actually mitigates global temperatures. So what I would like to see the focus on is actually finding solutions that, if you are concerned about climate change, will help people better adapt to a changing climate. And we see time and time again, economic growth allows people to have more resources and more wealth to deal with all sorts of problems, but also, you know, especially environmental problems. And having the developed world have better standards of living and access to energy will give them more heat when it's cool, uh, will give them air conditioning when we're facing heats or droughts, whether they're caused by man-made emissions or not. We can have resources to build higher and, and stronger seawalls and better and stronger buildings. Those activities and investments make a lot of sense to me. The other thing I think we can do when talking about conservative solutions is get the government out of picking winners and losers among energy sources and technologies. The reality is we spend way too much taxpayer money, both here in the United States and abroad, trying to pick what's going to be the next future energy source or trying to keep old ones on board. So we need to get rid of subsidies for renewables, for natural gas, for oil and nuclear, and let the market truly drive our energy future while making sure we reduce those criteria and pollutants that are known to have adverse effects to human health and the environment. And and that's really, I think, where the priority is for a lot of these developing nations, which they've tended to ignore. I mean, look at China, their air and water quality problems have nothing to do with CO2 emissions. Uh, they have to do with the fact that they're not addressing the black carbon and the soot and the, the smog issues that, that really are known to have those adverse impacts. So I think we need to talk about having those environmental improvements be part of the discussion as well and not just make this about climate. Jeff, I, one thing that I find very confusing in, in reading about this issue is the question of at what point the United States actually can withdraw from this agreement. Uh, I, I've read uh, different reports saying anywhere from a year to four years before the, the U.S. can actually withdraw from it. Do you know, uh, legally speaking, what are the commitments to the United States in terms of sort of providing notice uh, and, uh, and going through the process for withdrawing from this agreement? So the basic answer to that in terms of the path the president has identified is three years after the agreement goes into effect, you can serve notice of an intent to withdraw, and then a year after that, you can actually withdraw. So when you look at the calendar, and I don't have the dates in front of me, but when you look at the calendar, it basically puts the date when the president could withdraw. I believe it's one day after the next presidential election, so it's four years out. And so he so he's stuck with it during the term of his presidency. He yeah, I mean he's in we, the the country will be in the agreement. The question will be whether the United States does anything to implement 
the commitment it had previously made, and I think it appears that will not happen, which is unfortunate. And again, I would say if the president has a different view, he should come forward with other ways to do it. I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the earlier comments about the extent to which this agreement would actually make a difference and what's happening in China and India and adaptation, if I might, if that's, if that's okay. Please go ahead. First of all, this notion that the agreement would only make a minor difference in terms of two-tenths of a degree at some point far down the road, it has been disputed by a lot of serious analysis, including the authors of the report that at MIT that have been cited, according to the authors, improperly for that proposition. You know, it's hard to to know exactly what the impact would be because you have to wait until people take the action. But I think that the more reliable information that I've seen is that it could be anywhere from six-tenths of a degree to a full degree. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but actually when you look at the science, that can have a very, very big impact on global temperature and uh, carbon emissions and the stability of the environment. So... So I think that's a little bit overstated, at least based on, I haven't done the analysis myself. I'm not a scientist or an economist, but there's definitely significant debate about that. In terms of China and India, I mean, what I think what, what we see, and you know, Nick is absolutely right, China has a very, very serious pollution issue, and India has many, many people who don't have access to electricity. But what we're seeing in China is that they're, you know, they're a very centrally planned economy, and when they decide they're going to do something, they actually do it, and can do it, you know, much more rapidly than other than other economies can, and so they're slated to be way ahead of their commitments um, at this juncture, and there's quite a bit more transparency that in the past there has been some. Uh, shading of the facts, but they appear to really to understand that it's in their self-interest and frankly, that it's a matter of survival for them to solve the problems, the conventional pollution problems, and also the greenhouse gas problems that they have in order to serve their people. And in India, Prime Minister Modi is is, uh, embracing solar in a very big way. And solar, you know, he views solar as the answer for access to electricity. So there are different ways to do it. I don't think that complying with this agreement means that people are condemned to sit in the dark in poverty. In fact, I would say that if you want a better standard of living and do what's morally right, you change the way you bring wealth and a better standard of living to people in those countries. I mean, in China, they're not going to have a better standard of living if they can't breathe. So they're going to have to do something about it. And the other point is, I agree, adaptation is important, but you also have to try and mitigate the impact. You cannot, I mean, there is no way to build walls around the environment that we live in. There's only so much that you can do to adapt. And at a certain point, you won't be able to adapt your way out of it. So I think it's critical that we get control of these emissions, that we reverse engineer how we generate, how we use energy. And and the other point is that people, that companies are saving not just millions, but billions of dollars by saving energy and by doing things differently and being more efficient. So it's actually good for business, not bad for business. 
and it's creating new jobs, hundreds of thousands of new jobs. Nick, I'll give you an opportunity if you want to respond to any of that. Uh... Well, I, w- I would just say, you know, if it's good for business and they're going to save money, they're going to invest in those technologies anyway. Businesses and people inherently like saving money. And so you don't need regulations to force people to save money. and You don't need regulations to force businesses to save money. Uh, I will push back a little bit on the impact of what these regulations and what Paris would do. I don't think it was just the MIT study that demonstrated that Paris would have a negligible impact on climate. And, you know, you can play around with these numbers yourselves. There's this model for the assessment of greenhouse gas-induced climate change, or the MAGIC model, that was developed by scientists at the National Center for Atmospheric Research under funding from our own Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, And you can choose which climate sensitivity you want. Uh, You can choose how aggressive you want the carbon cuts and greenhouse gas emissions cuts to be for not just the United States, but the industrialized world and the developing world. And you you can have some pretty significant assumptions in terms of uh, where the climate is headed and and choose towards the 4.5 degree Celsius end of the climate sensitivity and still have very deep emissions cuts and you're not really mitigating global temperatures very much. And so, again, I I don't mean to be a complete naysayer, but I, I really do believe that this attempt that we can actually do something and have enough hubris to think that we can mitigate global temperatures and somehow fix uh, this collective action problem while still gaining access to affordable, reliable energy for both the developed world and the developing world is just a very much near impossible task. The other thing I will say... With regards to your initial question about getting out of Paris, the other thing the Trump administration could do and get us out of Paris in a year is to withdraw from the entire United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is what we recommended because President Obama submitted this through the, as a sole executive agreement and it was done so through this framework. We could leave the UNFCCC and everything we're a party to, which would include Paris, uh, within a year. That would be the fastest way to get out, which I think is why you're hearing some confusion as to whether it's one year or four years. All right, thanks. We're just about out of time here, and I want to give each of you an opportunity to give us your closing thoughts on this. And I would also invite you to share uh, any contact information with our listeners so they could follow up with you if you want to do that. So, Jeff Gracer, let me start with you, your closing thoughts. Well, I think that it's very easy to talk about doomsday scenarios and, and the fact that this just can't get done. And what I'm seeing, and I think what many people in the business community are seeing, is that it can get done. I mean, there, there are a lot of success stories out there, and we should be building on that. And I think that one can have a debate about whether regulation, a particular regulation, is the best way to go. But being in an international framework where everyone in the world is trying to be smarter and to do more with less and to emit less pollution just can't be a bad thing. We have to try. And I think that a lot of the doubt about the science is we're sort of past that at this point for many people. I mean, I think about 20% of America doesn't believe the science, but 80% either believes it or is, is strongly inclined to believe it. And we see all around us the evidence of what the models have been telling us what happened. So it's, it's right now. It's happening right now. So let's get to work and get it done and use the markets and use business savvy and build on success 
and have some assistance from state and local government, corporations, and hopefully eventually people in Washington. Thanks a lot. I know your firm is uh, sprlaw.com. Is there any other uh, information you want to share in terms of how people could follow up with you? My email is on our website, so that would be fine, and my telephone number. Thank you. Sounds good. All right. Nick Loris, you get to have the uh, last word today. Well, thank you for having me. And, you know, I would say that, you know, whatever one thinks about climate change and the science behind it, and I, you know, I do believe the climate is changing in that, yes, man-made emissions are certainly playing a role, although I don't think we're headed towards catastrophic warming. And if you look at some of the findings from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, even they suggest we're not really seeing any type of trend in terms of intensity or frequency uh, of natural disasters, whether it's heat waves or tornadoes, uh, droughts, floods, hurricanes. Um, That said, the climate is changing. uh, And yes, we've seen warming because of man-made emissions. But this is a costly, ineffective approach in terms of coming up with a a solution to any problem, even if it is a problem. And there's nothing about leaving this agreement that prevents all of these businesses that were supportive of Paris from continuing to invest in new energy technologies, because the reality is the market for energy is $6 trillion and projected to grow one-third by the year 2040. Um, And we have more than 1.3 billion people that don't have access to electricity, let alone reliable, affordable energy. So there's a huge market incentive for the private sector to pursue those next energy technologies without the aid of the taxpayer. Uh, We should make sure that we're not subsidizing energy sources, but also ensuring that we're not driving out energy sources through regulatory diktat that are devoid of any meaningful environmental benefit. Um, And you can check out my work at the Heritage Foundation. It's heritage.org. My email address is on that website as well. Well, thank you very much to both of you for taking the time to be with us and share your insights on this issue. We've been talking with Jeffrey B. Gracer from the law firm Sive Paget and Rizel in New York City and Nick Loris, an economist with the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C. Thanks to both of you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show today. This is Bob Ambrosi. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. 
Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.